a word of explanation why we stand for the gospel. We stand because we are risen and Christ is risen from the dead and the gospel is the good news that Christ is risen and the symbol of standing is to express our joy and our belief that Christ is risen from the dead and we are risen too. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who felt into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Father, we ask that you might make your word more than words, and that your word might take up living residence within our life, that the living Christ might come alive more fully in our lives today for having worshipped you and placed ourselves under the reading, the preaching, and the singing of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've begun a series on discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I want to refresh your memory on what we've explored so far. The first chapel we talked about that turning point in the life and public ministry of Jesus where he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He had first asked the disciples, who do the rest of the folks say that I am? And they came up with many theories, but then he put it to all of them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter, jumping to the opportunity with that spontaneous faith, said, you are the Christ of God. You're the son of the living God. I told you that I thought Christ called out, who do men say that I am, all the way from the nativity. And we looked at George Latour's nativity scene, where the child beckons out, what child is this? It makes us think from the very beginning, what kind of child would people come so far to see? What kind of child is this that that the king of the country would kill other babies just to be sure that he'd killed this one child? And then we looked at the end of his life as we looked at the painting of Rembrandt's painting of the resurrection. And from the resurrected Christ, the obvious statement is, who do you say that I am? And I encouraged you at the beginning of this semester to make a decision to say along with Peter from the bottom of your heart, I believe you are the Christ of God. And with that faith to let your understanding grow. And I told you that there's a paradox there that some of us need more understanding to have faith, but many of us need to practice and exercise our faith in order to gain understanding. And then the second talk we had was to ask, what are some of the essentials? And and we looked at... uh, Ruault's painting of Christ, that rugged face of Christ with the essential lines. And we looked into the teachings of Jesus where he was asked the essential question that Dr. Jaiwardena read for us this morning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds when the man answers the question correctly. I tend to think he'd heard Jesus give the correct answer on another occasion. And Jesus blesses him for having answered properly that the essential factor in life, the purpose of all living, is to love God with everything, with our intellect, with our minds. That's why we're here honing them at this college. With our hearts, with our emotions. We're not just to be arid thinkers. We're meant to be passionate lovers of God. And with our wills and with our strength, the ability to endure but then Jesus added, as, as this young man picked up and he fed back to Jesus, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the part I'd like to look at today. But before we do, we have on the screen a painting from Rembrandt. It's a close-up of the painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, or The Return of the Prodigal. And you'll see in this 
slide, we have the close-up of the prodigal son with the hands of his father in blessing on his shoulders. And you'll notice his, his clothes are torn. You'll notice his head looks almost like a newborn's head just about to break out of the womb. His face is emaciated and dirty. The father's hands are clean. The father's robe you can see up in the upper right and left-hand corners. He, it shows his dignity and his position and his wealth. If you could see the rest of the painting, you'd see that his sandals are literally torn off his feet from walking all the way home from the far country. You remember the story Jesus told this parable. He said, there was a father with two sons, and one came to the father and said, give me my inheritance now. And so the father sold off some of the property and gave the young man, even before his own death, the father's death, his inheritance. And the son took it, and he went to a far country, and he squandered it on wild living. Finally, coming to his senses, Jesus tells us, he says, I've got to return to my father. I remember at my father's house, even the servants eat well. And so I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against earth. I know I, I do not deserve to be called your son anymore, but please take me on as one of the hired servants. And so he returned to the father. Rembrandt painted this many times, and in his earlier paintings of this, it's a picture full of action. The father moving toward the son. As Jesus in his parable says, the father, when he saw the son a long way off, ran out to meet him. And, and in, in Rembrandt's earlier days, he caught that part of the, 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 uh, pr the uh, parable. The, the action of the father moving toward this wayward son. But in his last years, and the, by the way, this is one of his last paintings before his death. He paints the painting in stillness. Look at how still the picture is. There's no movement. The son has nuzzled his head into the father. He cannot believe what he is receiving. He expected or hoped with all of his heart that he might be taken on as a hired hand. But never did he expect the stillness of the father's love and blessing. If we're going to love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls, and with all our strength, and if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, John tells us we first have to experience the blessing of the Father on our lives. We first have to experience the acceptance and the tenderness of the Father. That is the good news, that God invites us back from a far country. He, he invites us back with our tattered clothing. He invites us back with our sandals falling off our feet and our emaciated appearance as we'd sought life in places where there is no life and we'd finally come to our senses. And if we are going to love God, it must come first because He has loved us and we've experienced it. It goes beyond simply knowing about it, though that's important. It means incorporating it, letting it become incarnate in your life. Have you experienced the love of God as the Son here is experiencing? I believe, and this is after some 30-some years of trying to follow Christ, I remember when I first felt the blessing of God the Father's hands on my shoulders as a wayward son. And in those 30-some years since, I've become convinced that until and unless we experience that love of God, we will not be able to fulfill the first commandment and the second which is like it. 
until we experience the acceptance and the forgiveness just as we are, without one plea. Until we come to the Lamb of God and experience that welcoming, we'll not be able to give it fully to others. Oh, we can fake it, and we can be nice without it. You can be a nice person. But as C.S. Lewis has said in his book, Mere Christianity, God is not out to make nice people. He's out to have new creations. But Jesus said to that man who answered, Well, you've answered well. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Go and do this, and you will live. I love the simplicity of Jesus. Just do this, and you'll experience life. You, you won't be emaciated. You'll find joy. One of the things in watching a bit of the news coverage of Princess Diana, whom I knew very little about, I was impressed with the fact that at her death, people were looking into the deeper side of her nature. I had only seen the, the glitzy and glamorous and beautiful side on the covers. Hadn't read many of the articles. Hadn't watched much TV because we don't watch much TV in my family. And so I learned some things and I listened to others. And one of the things I was impressed with was at the end of her life, apparently, she was reaching out to others in the midst of her pain. She was taking her boys to see AIDS patients. You know, so one of the greatest cures for depression is to start reaching out to other people. It's not always to look inward. Sometimes it's to look outward and to find dignity and purpose in our life. It's ironic, isn't it, that Mother Teresa passed away in the same week as Princess Diana. I think arguably the two best-known women in this world. Mother Teresa. Her real name was Agnes Gongsa Bojangsu. She was born in 1910 in Albania, not in India. She studied to be a nun in Ireland. She learned English, and she went to India as a missionary, teaching English to rich Indian girls at a private girls' school. And she did that for 20 years. No one ever heard of her. And then on a train ride, Jesus told her to go and serve the poorest of the poor. In later years, uh, people said, well, she saw the plight of the poor and her heart was moved and so she went and ministered to the poorest of the poor. That's not true, she said. I saw the poorest of the poor for 20 years and I taught English to rich young women. The reason I went to serve the poorest of the poor, picking up the dead and the dying in the streets of Calcutta, was because I loved Jesus Christ and he told me to do it. And later when she was asked, what is your vocation? Normally a vocation in Roman Catholic tradition might be seen, at least from the outside, as the tasks you perform. But she said, my vocation is Jesus. I belong entirely to him. It's to love him, to know him. That is my vocation. And because of knowing him, I see him in the distressing disguise of the poor. That's the way she put it. When she would see a poor person with maggots crawling over wounds in their body only hours away from death, what she saw and trained herself to see was Jesus Christ in a distressing disguise. And so she offered the poor beggar love 
as she would if it was Jesus Christ, because she believed it was. I've had the privilege of working with the Sisters of Charity, some of the young women that she trained in Sri Lanka with Dr. Jaiwardhana and some of our students on two different occasions, and we've been in a house of dying, and we've worked with the people, and we've seen those situations. And I can tell you there's not one Mother Teresa who just died. There are some five or 6,000 of them right now. They all have the same spirit because it's not the spirit of Mother Teresa. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ. And she's been able to pass that on to many sisters, many of them North American women like you. She's also started an order for young men called the Brothers of the Universal Word, by which she means to proclaim the gospel universally in word, not just in action. The sisters are in action and in word. The brothers are in word and in action. It's an interesting. Could we put the next slide on, please? This is a painting that describes the passage that Dr. Jai Wardena read from. It's a famous Italian painting by Domenico Fetti, who lived in the 1589 to 1623. And it's a striking painting. I'm not sure how well it comes across. I'll try to describe it for you who can't see it as well. We're still getting some of the technical things down on this art. When you first look at the painting, even when you're close up, it's the first thing you notice are the trees and the landscape. You barely see the central figures. And you think it's a landscape at the beginning. And then right in the center, you see this bundle of humanness. You see one person looking away from the picture. You never see his face. That's the good Samaritan. A shocking statement because Samaritans were half-breeds. Samaritans were theological heretics in the minds of the Jews. So for Jesus to use a Samaritan as a good example might be for conservative theological circles in America like saying the good Muslim or the good New Ager. And the good Samaritan in the picture, you never see his face. And you barely see the face of the wounded Jewish man whom the Samaritan is picking up. You can tell it's a heavy burden. And down in the lower, lower left-hand corner, something just happened there. But down in the lower left-hand corner, when it comes back, you'll see just a small dot. It's just a very small figure. And that's the figure of one of the religious Jewish people going off in the distance who's passed by the man who had been beaten up and left robbed. The Samaritan picks him up. The Samaritan nurses him back to health. The Samaritan pays for his inn, for the wages for the inn and his lodging and gives money for his medicine. The colors of the picture are dull and heavy because the burden of lifting this broken Jewish man beaten by the robbers is a heavy burden. Loving neighbor is a heavy burden. Jesus said that the test of our love for God is how we love people. It's not just the idea of loving people. It's the actuality of loving them. Last year, Potter's Clay had t-shirts made that I think are the best we've ever seen. I see one right there. And I'm going to embarrass this person. <laughs> Would you come up here just for a second? And uh, come right up here with me. Hi. Hi. 
Hi. I'm Bart. Hi, Bart. I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Turn, you're, we're going to have, just like the Good Samaritan, we're just going to see your back. It says, a more, a more action, action, action. In Spanish, of course, a more is love. And acción is the same as action in English. And I think Potter's Clay came up with a, a wonderful way of making a statement that love, true love, always moves to action. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. A hand. You know, it's interesting. This morning I thought of that shirt and I meant to bring one with me and I forgot. So I'm glad uh, in God's providence you were supplied. <laughs> According to Jesus, love for God always becomes compassion and tenderness in action, not just in thought. He says the second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. He tells the story and then he says, which one proved neighbor? Now, do you remember what the question was in the beginning? The man had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus never answered his question. He says, who proved in the story to be a neighbor? It's not, let's figure out if this man's my neighbor so I can love him. And then this woman is not my neighbor because she's of a different race or comes from another nation. So they're not my neighbor so I don't have to love them. He says, no, no, it's not, it's not drawing lines around people to figure out who I'll love. It's being a neighbor to everyone. Now, actually, I think sometimes it's easier to love the person far off than it is to love the person close up. I'd like to go back to Rembrandt's painting for a moment, but this time I'd like to show you the entire painting. You can bring these lights down for a minute. This is the entire painting. You can, it's in the L'Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Again, you see the stillness of the painting. You see a little more of the prodigal son. Look at his feet, the sandals literally falling off. But who are these other people in the picture? All of the light from the picture, by the way, comes from the Father. You see how the light comes from the face of the Father and through the Son, and then the, the overflow shines on these three mysterious figures to the right. Who are these people? You remember the story, there were two sons. There was the elder son. You remember him? He, he stayed at home. He didn't squander the inheritance. He worked hard. He plowed fields. He trimmed vineyards. He stayed close to the father, at least physically, but not in heart, apparently. Because as you can see, the elder brother is at the far side of the painting. He's stiff. He's rigid. He's cold. He's looking at this no-good younger brother of his who's come back and who's receiving the blessing of his father. He's thinking to himself, you should take this wayward son of yours on as a hired servant, not welcome him back as a son. You shouldn't kill the fatted calf for him. You should kill it for me. The older brother is saying, you should put the guy on probation, not give him a blessing. I think sometimes it's tougher to be a neighbor to those right under our nose than it is to be a neighbor to those beaten up by the side of the road. Sometimes it's a roommate, or a professor, or a student, or a colleague, or a mother, or a father, or a brother, that it's most difficult for you to love, that it's most difficult for you to accept, that it's most difficult for you to forgive. 
But Jesus says his love is love in action. Action to those far on the outside, way past all the prejudices and boundaries of our particular subculture, both theological and geographical and ethnic. There are no such things in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Christ there's no male nor female, there's no Jew nor Greek. It's all one in Christ. Christ's love goes out equally to all, and our love in Christ is meant to. Well, Jesus instructs us that we can't love that way unless and until we are loved by the Father. Unless and until we are accepted and know our acceptance, know our belovedness in the midst of our brokenness and sinfulness. Not as an excuse for it. One of the things I find that friends in my churches and myself have the hardest time is we have the feeling like the elder brother. And that feeling is if I give total forgiveness to this person, total acceptance, while they're still in their tattered clothing, won't I be condoning instead of condemning their sin? If I love them, if I put my armor on them, if I welcome them into the family of Jesus, don't I condone the very... Shouldn't they, I be sure that they've become cleansed? I mean, you can't tell the man's heart, the prodigal's heart in this picture. Sure, he came back, but it might have been just because he was hungry. And we worry that we will be condoning brokenness and sin by welcoming the broken person. And Jesus says forever, no, that is not the case. Think of God's love. Does he wait for us to clean ourselves up before he gives us his forgiveness? No, the Father's love is sitting on the porch waiting all the time the same, waiting for us to experience it. So I want to call you to three things this morning. The first is to place yourself in the shocking love of the Father. And to find out that the invitation to his family is wide open for you. That his hands want to reach down and touch your shoulders and give you his blessing. Because he wants to reach within you and change you. But it never, never, never stops there. The love of Jesus Christ, if indeed it is the love of Jesus Christ, always becomes amor, 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 which becomes action, 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 love put into practice. So I call you to feel the love of the Father on your shoulders, but I call you as well to begin to experience his eyes for the people around you. And thirdly, I call you to use your feet to take the love of Jesus Christ to those people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we might experience your love which comes across a great gulf like the love of the Samaritan in your parable which crossed the gulf of ethnicity and racial prejudice, religious prejudice, We pray that we might experience your love which comes across a great gulf of alienation and brokenness and woos us back to a life of holiness, a life that is life. Father, we pray that we might experience and know your love 
that we might think about it long and hard, but that we might also experience it deeply and allow it to transform us, to transfix us on Jesus Christ, but to transform us from within. And then we pray that we might take that love out to those nearby, right here on this campus, and to those around the world, that we might be your love in action, that we might, through our dedication to you, be your hands, your feet, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Now may the grace of God our Father, which invites you as a wayward child to place your head on his bosom, to hear his heartbeat, to feel his hands of love and acceptance and tenderness upon your shoulders. And may the power of Jesus Christ and his teachings and the comfort and the disturbance of the Holy Spirit Cause us to allow Christ to be formed more fully within us this day and forevermore. Amen.